Welcome to Ramblin' Writers, the Park Life Communications podcast, where we discuss our work writing for some of the world's coolest companies and leaders, as well as topics that inspire us as creatives. You're listening to our very first show. Let's dive in. I'm Suzette Feller. Hey, I'm Brian Castle. And we're the Ramblin' Writers. So I really enjoyed reading your piece the other day, and I think it's one of the great privileges of my position around here is that I get to read them first. Um, Really liked what you wrote about the three marketing blunders and and what you can learn from them. Where did the idea for that uh, come from? Well, back in school, when I was studying public relations and media and journalism, we did a lot of studying on mistakes like this, major marketing mistakes. And I've always found it really fascinating because you hear a lot about the great advertisements that sort of made it in the history books and set the precedent for a lot of advertising that followed them. And those are interesting, but to me, it's just not quite as fascinating as taking a look at what has gone wrong in marketing because it's a way to learn a great deal about your profession, about what not to do and about what to do instead without having to make those mistakes for yourself. Um, So it's a really good way to better yourself as a marketing professional just by looking at mistakes that other people have made and then finding takeaways that you can use in your own job. And I just find it really fun and interesting and funny. Well, the, it's funny you're talking about how fun and interesting it is learning from failure. It's only fun and interesting when it's somebody else's failure. All the best people I've ever worked with um, will tell you that failure is a way better teacher than success. Um, There are times when you succeed where you're really not sure, even if you're pretty diligent about tracking everything you do, getting feedback from everybody involved, whether that's general public, customers, clients, uh, other stakeholders. It's just hard sometimes to pinpoint where that tipping point is that made you succeed. But hot damn, when you fail, you know exactly why. And because you know exactly why, uh, and, and, and like you illustrated in these articles with big brands like BlackBerry, uh, Coca-Cola. Who was the other one? Heinz Ketchup. Oh, yeah, the pornography one. Um, yeah, that one's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, like, and I think a good one, a good and easy one, because, um, you know, you can make small mistakes that turn into very large blunders, like your example of the the BlackBerry person tweeting from an iPhone um, and, and, and worse yet, tweeting from the client that's iPhone based to where the whole world sees that BlackBerry uses an iPhone. Um, you know, it's a little thing that goes a long way to ruining you. Um, 
Your other examples, the big one, I lived that new coat versus what they what they had to call coat classic for a long time thereafter. What was that like living through that? Yeah, it was it was really weird. I mean, I grew up in the deep south. Um Atlanta Coke is an Atlanta based thing. It's a worldwide institution now, but back then I it was probably more of a national institution. Um and revered in the South. We had one of the largest uh, Coca-Cola bottlers in Jackson where I grew up. And I only had like one friend who drank Pepsi, like everybody else was Coke. And they were really feeling the pressure. Like Pepsi was investing a lot, mainly through celebrities to make their brand hip and cool. And I think in some ways Coke overestimated that threat or just chose, obviously, it was it was validated. They chose the wrong way to respond to it. And so that one's a good example of, you know, you're, you're facing increased pressure. So do you change your core product, the one that's given you mar- market dominance? Or as they learned from that failure, do you do some other things? And, you know, these companies... You know, Coke's doing fine. You know, Heinz Ketchup's doing fine. Now, Blackberry, I don't know. But their problems were a lot bigger than making a blunder. You know, they they just got bum-rushed by the iPhone, basically. Well, that's the thing. I, I think it wasn't just that blunder. It was the context of the blunder. They were already being overrun by iPhone and it was literally the worst thing they could have done in that moment. Um, so yeah, the context definitely had something to do with it. And, and going back to the Pepsi and Coke thing, it kind of ties nicely into another article I wrote about authenticity because I think that part of the reason why consumers reacted so negatively to Coke altering its recipe to be more sugary, to taste more like Pepsi is because they saw that as very inauthentic. I mean, what really is more inauthentic than changing yourself to be more like your competition? That's just really a betrayal of this brand that yes, may be experiencing more competition than previously, but is still a classic beloved brand to so many people. So I think that's part of why people had such a negative reaction to it because they saw it as, as fake and inauthentic and as almost weak to be changing your whole recipe just to fit in with some competitor. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a very apt description of what was going on there and obviously the public gagged Uh, what i thought was great about your article is how it tied to our core constituents which is not fortune 500 fortune 1000 brands but the small and mid-sized business i think we've had the real privilege of working with a lot of successful people People that not only start and lead companies to success, but also invest in companies um, and bring out their best. And one thing I've noticed, 
particularly from this entrepreneur investor class. They don't go in and invest in companies and change the DNA. They might address some of the areas where the, the company's not performing well and either replace people in those positions or equip the people there with more resources and tools to do better. But you think about it, why would they want to buy a company with failing products or services that don't resonate with anybody? It's more about the execution on that. And so if what entrepreneurs and investors, the the great ones, if what they prize is authenticity, why aren't we all doing that? I also think, you know, this subject ties back to us. If you think about the recent rebrand we did, I've got several people we're talking to now. Um, the new year is usually when this hits people squarely, um, where they start looking at their websites or maybe even their brand assets, and they go, this is not who I am um, because businesses change. And let's talk about what we did recently, like with our own rebrand to solve this. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of tied this back in the Marketing Blunders article that I wrote because I talked about how change can be a really good thing for a company, but there are just certain things that make your company what it is. Like in Coca-Cola's case, it was their recipe and consumers don't want to see those things changed, but some things they do want to see changed or at least are open and welcoming to change. So I think that part of that is, um, you have to ask yourself before you make a big change, whether it's a rebrand or a new logo, is this my company trying to express itself in more authentic ways, which I think is exactly what we did with the rebrand. Our old website and logo were a little outdated and they just didn't reflect who we are. So in that case, we were changing to become more authentic. Whereas if you're making a change that seems inauthentic. If you're making a change that seems like you're trying to be somebody else, someone you're not, then that's not going to be welcomed by your clients or your customers. And one thing that I think of is, um, I think it was like around 2010 gap tried to roll out a new logo. It's interesting how it was just a logo, but you could immediately tell at least to me, maybe it's just because I'm in marketing, but I could immediately tell it felt inauthentic because that old Gap logo, which is so iconic, it got this sort of formal, a little bit old-fashioned, classic kind of feel. It's a serif font. And then they rolled out this new logo that was a sans serif, and it was just trying so hard to be modern. And that's just not who Gap is. Gap is a company about selling the classics. Its customers go there for classic, timeless clothing. They don't necessarily go there for modern styles. And so I think that's part of why that rebrand was met with so much, almost like vitriol. And I think it's because it just seemed so inauthentic to Gap's brand, um, even though it was just a logo. So on the flip side of the coin, when we rolled out our rebrand, we really focused on 
conveying who we truly are. And um, who we are is is more modern than that old website and that old logo was. We're very much becoming sort of like a one-stop shop for marketing where we're using all these new media from podcasting to videography. And our old website didn't necessarily reflect that. It it made it seem more like we were pretty much just for copywriting, a little bit of social media, a little bit of other stuff, but mostly just good old-fashioned copywriters. And that's definitely a big, big part of what we do, but it's not the full picture. So I think that's why our rebrand was more successful than someone like Gap or Coca-Cola in the instances I described, just because it was a very authentic rebrand. I think it's also important, you know, to think there was a lot of push and pull during our creative process. Um, You know, we went through several weeks of different iterations of our logo. And then we piggybacked that with a few weeks of content. You know, we did the content in not as distinct phases as I like to do for clients, but there was a method to the madness nonetheless. And as you and Diana, God rest her soul, where um, you guys worked on the copy, you know, there was this push. And the push was you, you always want to, like, to be authentic. I think you're expressing the here and now especially. And then the immediately aspirational. So, like, here's where we are as an agency. Here's where we're going. And so I think that's that's the cool way to push your thinking. But then there was a pull where I would pull you guys back or Jeanette would pull you guys back and go, okay, is that who we are? Or do we need to dial it back one tick? And you always say that you'd rather have to reel me in than have to push me to be more creative. And I think that's one of your, one of your best qualities as a boss, because it definitely encourages me to take more risks and be more creative in my work, which makes me a much better writer and marketing strategist. And since you always approve anything that we send to a client or that gets released to the public for viewing. I never worry about going too far because I have you to reel me in. So knowing that there's always this safety net definitely pushes me to be more creative. Yeah, that's more my burden to carry, isn't it? You know, and, and then, you know, I, I I got that way of working, that ethos, really from the first few clients I worked with. They all validated that, you know, when I would send them stuff and they would almost apologize for editing, you know, and 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 they would say things like, hey, I just really wanted to get this the way I wanted it. And I'm like, that's what your review is for, not to rubber stamp me. And I've told you this, I get scared when people do that. 
um, that they might not have a good sense of who they are, what they want to say, how their clients and public will react. Like, I want good, strong editors. Um, And we're blessed to work with a bunch of them, by the way. I used to think the same thing with Jeanette, our operations manager. She would always apologize for (laughs) giving me edits and be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so nitpicky. And I didn't mind it at all because I knew it meant that we were going to send really quality work to the client and that we had that attention to detail, that perfectionism. So it actually made me feel better. It made me feel more uh, reassured and more confident in the work that I was sending off, knowing that it had to get through Jeanette first. And she had a very appropriately high standard. So I agree. I think that edits are are great and should be encouraged. And clients as well as any marketing supervisors should never feel guilty giving them because speaking for myself, at least I like getting edits. I find it, I I think it's a good sign if you're getting edits. It means that everyone in your business is really committed to producing the best possible work. Ramblin' Writers is brought to you by Park Life Communications. Meet your new marketing team. From copywriting to thought leadership and strategy, we deliver marketing services that help you grow your brand. Visit www.parklifecom.com to learn more. I want to talk about your ghostwriting article because sometimes ghostwriting kind of gets a bad rep. So what would you say to try and kind of dismantle that stigma? First of all, I would just say that's stupid. Now I've got to give a real argument so it's not just me being defensive about what I do for a living. But you got to think about who uses ghostwriters, which is basically anybody that's got something to say about what they do who isn't a writer. You know, and so these people are leaders. They're people with ideas, um, and 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 some of them, quite frankly, you know, you know how we can all be smart in different ways. Some of these folks who will blow your mind, and I could name lots of names here. They can blow your mind with the way they speak on any given topic. They can blow your mind with how they come up with different ideas on how to do anything in life, business, whatever. They can blow your mind on how they execute on those ideas. Some of my absolute favorite people to work with are people like that. But it would equally blow your mind, but in a different way, how they're not the, you know, they definitely weren't the top of their class in English. You know, like they were never writing A papers. They might have read the books and understand, understood these awesome novels or other nonfiction books better than anybody else. 
But for whatever reason, the way their brains work, it doesn't come out in print. So you've got to ask yourself this question. Does the world deserve those people to have their voice in print? Or are they just going to be limited to the media that are suited to their particular types of intelligence? I would say I just made a pretty strong case that the world would be deprived of these people otherwise in a lot of ways. Like if you could only hear them speak, that's going to limit their the world's exposure and their ability to improve their industry, their pursuits, other people's lives, um, equipping, giving other people tools. There's also, and that's a, that's a small segment. There's also a pretty big segment of folks that use ghostwriters who, let's just face it, this is what plagues all of us is not having enough time in the day. Um, and, and these are people who are often way beyond traditional perceptions of work-life balance anyway. This could be like my good friend who is running a major startup. Uh, they've made four acquisitions in the last year. His team is up to their eyeballs successfully integrating those acquisitions. And in addition to his day-to-day driving this fast-growing team, he's flying all over the country, you know, going on diligence trips, looking at other companies that might fit in with his vision. So does he ever really, being fair to him, have time to sit in front of a screen for a couple of hours and think about things he wants to write about. <laughs> it's a, that's an unfair ask of him. Like if you want to say, let's get rid of ghostwriters because we don't think that's authentic. Well, I can tell you how authentic it is. And, and I think I illustrated this pretty successfully in the article to work with a ghostwriter. Like I can't just make stuff up whole cloth. I wouldn't want to anyway, but that's not really what ghostwriting is about. And I think the people who have that misperception or they're just wired to be cynical about anything, they're thinking, oh, so Brian has all these great ideas and he writes them and then they're ascribed to some executive who takes them on as his own. And, like, that couldn't be farther from the truth. I am meeting with these people. I'm exchanging emails. I think I gave the example of one guy who liked to send me voice notes from his iPhone, my friend Joe. Um, I love taking that where he's speaking to an idea. I love it when we capture some great video on some of these thinkers. And so we can really tap that vein of how they talk. And as we're not merely transcribing, but we're creating new work, like they're 
their DNA, their ideas, their way of speaking, if we're doing our jobs right, it's it really we're we're shaping the clay. It's not us painting a blank canvas. And so I just think it's important for people to understand that from a process standpoint, process starts and ends with that recipient of the ghostwriting. And it's our job, and you do this too, it's our job to fill in that pretty big middle of getting the work done. Yeah. I kind of think of it like this. If you were working at a financial institution and you needed your website coded, you wouldn't have one of your bankers do it. You would bring in a professional coder. Writing, I think, doesn't get enough credit as something that not everybody can do. It really is a specialized profession with not the same extra schooling that a doctor or a lawyer goes to, but much of the same specialized training and lots of it. It's really a profession that requires specialized knowledge and that not everybody can do, which I think is a common misconception that, oh, anybody can put pen to paper and write. And when we go write, it's not it's not that we're coming up with these ideas and then putting them on paper and attributing it to some other executive. We're taking the executive's ideas. And in fact, a lot of the time we're taking some of their words too. A lot of the time we, we start with much of the stuff that they've said. We start, we start with words that came out of their own mouth and then we translate that and rearrange it and tweak it into a, readable article that flows nicely and sounds clean and professional. And that's something that not everyone can do. That's why not only because of the time constraints, but also just because of that lack of expertise. That's why a lot of executives have to outsource to ghostwriters because they trust that we can put their ideas on paper in a more eloquent way than they could. I think you made a few good points there. That I'm glad you brought up. Have you heard like uh, this is a kind of a slang term, but uh, it's one of my favorites right now. Where you got these two competitors, and it might be like LeBron James with a younger player, and it'll show LeBron giving props to the younger player, and the caption might be "Real, recognize real." So I do think I've run across a lot of people who recognize the reality, the real, of the expertise that people like us bring to communicating their ideas for them. I've also run across a few people, and this is like they work with agencies that we work with, and I, I would say, I would say, so are we going to do any copywriting on that? And they'd say, oh no, they they want to write everything themselves. And it's funny, I don't I don't have time to review too many projects that I didn't get. But what would you guess the percentage of the time when I do see those projects? Do I think we could have done a better job? Probably close to 100. Yeah, it's always 100%. 
And really it's because not that we would have just taken it and done it, but it removes this collaborative element. They're not seeing their own blind spots, which I think you and I would go into almost any assignment going, there's like this humility there where we would go, yeah, we're the experts and we'll do a work, but there might be a blind spot or two that we need to look at it with each other and the client. And so when they're flying that way, there's, there's going to be dead bodies strewn across the work. And it's pretty easy for people like us to see. And in some cases, it's just ass. I mean, I'll just go. And it's sort of like, and I'll tell you where that mindset comes from. What percentage of, let's play the percentages game again. What percentage of people who attend primary and secondary school in the United States of America take English and learn how to write 100%. Okay. So it's sort of like saying if you took English, you know how to write, you know, like a profession, just like, do you think I know how to turn a wrench? Like I, I have hands, I have muscles and all that. But do you think I've ever put a wrench under the hood of my truck? Yeah, never. Never, not one time. Because I know there are people who really know what they're doing with that wrench. Just like I freaking know what I'm doing with my pen. You know, so... It's, it is going through life, like, knowing what you are, staying in your lane, <laughs> and doing the best you can in that lane. Yeah, I, I really think that the marketing team and client relationship works best when the marketing team recognizes that they are an expert in writing and marketing, but they're not an expert in the client's field or industry. And then the client recognizes that they are the expert in their field, in their industry, but they are not the expert in writing and marketing. And that's that sweet spot where the relationship just can flow and collaborate and work together so beautifully. But if it gets a little bit out of balance is when things get wonky. And just like I think that like we, like you mentioned, there's a humility to it. And I think that's very true. Whenever we first get to know a client, we come in with this understanding that we may not know a thing about their industry or field to begin with. And so there's always um, a research process, which usually involves talking with the client, asking them lots of questions, also maybe just doing some online research on our own time. And the nice thing is that for the client, they don't have to take that same step. We kind of take care of everything on the writing and marketing front. There's no research that has to be done on their end. All they have to do is trust in us and leave all that stuff to us and we'll take care of it. But that also requires um, a great deal of humility, I think. Yeah. And, you know, you you spoke to the whole notion of experience. It's, It's sort of like, And there's nuances to this, but it's not like the first people that ever hired us before we had experience in 
I don't even know. He put it on the site in our bios. But between the two of us, and, and, and Jeanette as well, there's a few dozen industries we've written for. It kind of boggles my mind now, after doing this almost 11 years, how much experience you can rack up in that amount of time. But some of my conversations go like this. Have you ever written in the blah, blah, blah industry or for companies like mine? And my response is, oh, yeah, we've done da 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 And, yeah, it'd be really fun to do that with you. Um, then the other kind of conversation is, no, but I think it would be cool as we work with you to learn about your industry and how you differentiate within it. Um, and I basically expressed to them is like, I, I don't really feel boundaries too much. There are some, like when you get into really highly technical writing in some more commodity driven SEO industries, SEO driven industries. Yeah. You need to be able to be, and we do plenty of work in those but we've had to really rely on our subject matter experts a lot more because there's just so much detail minutia to capture that their, their percentage of the lift is quite a bit more than the non-technical. Do we still do a great job and provide great value? I've been told that like the people who work in those industries. And this gets back to, it's not always about time and resources. It can be about what we bring specifically to the equation. When I work with those kind of people, the feedback that I get overwhelmingly is you just bring kind of these, these softer elements, these more approachable elements. Cause I think people in those professions, you know, scientists, engineers. There's no easing into a conversation with them. There's what some people might call fluff or pleasantries. And I don't write, I feel like I don't write fluffy, pleasantry-laden articles, but it's, it's, it's the art of writing a good lead and the art of pulling it all together at the end instead of a data dump. And so, yeah, those folks in those pursuits are more likely to need to collaborate more tightly with us on the detail-oriented, like that's in the big middle part of a article or a paper or whatever. But they need us, too. The collaboration's incredible. I get, a, I get a big rush when people come back and they go, you made me want to read it. And, you know, they see great value in making their insanely intelligent brains more accessible to the public. Yeah. Yeah. Ghostwriting is really fun because it's a good challenge as a writer to take ideas, thoughts, and sometimes words that aren't your own and then wrap it up in a really pretty package that makes it far more engaging than it initially was. 
This podcast is brought to you by Park Life Communications, your one-stop shop for marketing content and strategy. Since 2009, we have helped numerous small and mid-sized businesses grow through high-quality copy and content. Visit www.parklifecom.com to learn more. One of the things I love talking to creative people about are the things that they see, whether it's something cool they read or something they saw in a museum uh, or, or even great music. I'm a huge music guy um, or places they went that inspired them. So I would throw that question to you, Suzette. What have you been exposed to lately that you found particularly inspiring? Well, I'm definitely having a music moment right now. There are a lot of artists that I recently discovered that I love. So it's kind of hard to pick just one, but I'm going to go with the band Babe Rainbow. Have you ever heard of them? Babe Rainbow. I love the name. Yeah, it's a great name. So they are hard to categorize into a genre. But to me, they're a bit of a throwback to psychedelic music. Um, So it's just like the most relaxing, joyful sound to listen to. And I really, really love them. And they sound so... They sound out of a different era, which I love. Mm-hmm. Like they really sound like they could have been from the sixties. Um, so I've been loving them and their newest album and especially the song us and the rainbow. Beautiful, beautiful song. You made me want to check them out. So I'll do it. Um, for me, <laughs> I've been really diving into podcasts lately for obvious reasons. And, um, now I've got several that I've found that I like uh, and I'm listening to regularly. And I found this particular podcast network and I don't know if they were exclusively launched just to do these, but it seems like most of their podcasts are in some shape or form about the Grateful Dead, Fish, and the whole jam band scene. Um, you know, any subject matter, there's like a million access points, you know, that you can go about. Like, they've got one called the Broke Down Podcast, which is a reference to a dead song called Broke Down Palace. And it's Talking to, and I think that podcast does a lot with how um, the Grateful Dead goes along with history and things that were happening at the time, certain aspects of dead music or dead culture, or whatever, were happening. But so a couple of weeks ago, the, I've started following that network. It's called Osiris, and I started following them on Facebook. And they started touting the release of a podcast completely dedicated to this series of live albums that the Grateful Dead authorized an archivist. Like they basically had taped all these concerts 
over like 30 years. And they allowed this one guy to go in and listen to these tapes and produce not just straight um, from the intro to the end, but albums that would give you the color of the show or its best moments or its most compelling moments. (laughs) This dude put out like 36 of these and it's called Dick's Picks. And it, and it way proceeds this phenomenon that you're thinking of where high school boys are getting in trouble left and right. Um, his name was something like Dick Lavetta. And so he was their official archivist. The bass player, uh, Phil Lesh, hired him after meeting him. Um, the Grateful Dead had no interest in doing this themselves. Um they were all about pushing music forward, not recounting the past, but they saw the value in it for their fans. I'm giving you a lot of context, as I usually do, to tell you they just launched the first episode last week. And so I'm listening to it and listening to it and listening to it while I'm working. And I look up and this thing's been going for an hour. And I noticed it's got another hour to go. I'm like, holy crap, a two-hour podcast. <laughs> it's these two guys, longtime fans and archivists, collectors. And what's so funny about it is they're talking about the series, the first volume one album that came out. They don't play any music. It's just a couple of dudes talking about music. And it was hilarious. Well, yeah. Now, what's funny is I kept waiting for them to play excerpts from volume one because the episode was about volume one. But it's kind of funny because it had the desired effect. What do you think I immediately did after I listened to it? I went and listened to volume one, <laughs> which was awesome. Um, but it's just kind of funny. I, I, I thought that these guys would be playing tracks and talking about them and giving little factoids or trivia. When really, it would be like if you and I both just were in love with the Babe Rainbow album. And we sat around for two hours talking about it. Well, maybe that'll happen after you listen to it. I think you'll like it. What's great is we'll get on here and uh, talk about fun stuff again real soon for episode two. Maybe even have a guest appearance from one of our favorite folks that we work with. All right. Well, it's been great talking with you today, Brian. You got it, man. Till next time.